1 Samuel 16, verses 1 through 23. We might only make it to verse 13. But let's pick up at verse 1. We'll read through verse 3 and go from there. Verse 1 says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemites, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, to, said Take a heifer, that is a cow, with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me one I name to you. I think many of us have been at a public school or at a park hanging out with our friends and wanting to play like basketball, soccer, baseball, football, and you need to split up the teams into two, right? And when you, in order to do that, the best sometimes way to do that is by picking captains. And you choose a captain, and then everyone else lines up on the wall, and they go back and forth. I want you, I want you, I want you. And if you're the captain, and you're playing like dodgeball, you want the guy or the girl with the best arm, right? So you're thinking like, who throws the ball the best? And that's what you're looking for. And you pick and you choose. But if you're in the lineup, the feeling of being picked first is great, right? That you love that feeling like, they, oh, they want you part of your team. You're like, yes, I'm on this team. And then if you're picked middle, that's pretty good. But if you've ever been picked last, it's no fun. And I've been there before, and I think many of us have, where we've been the last one chosen. And the last one's not even chosen. The last one just automatically goes to the team that doesn't have that last person. And it's almost like you're rejected. You're, you don't wa you're not wanted. You're forgotten and forsaken about. And sometimes when we are choosing, we judge on appearance. On the outward. But the question is, how does God choose? When he looks at a person, what is he looking at and what is he looking for? What is the way that God chooses and selects a person? to become king, to be a leader, to do a specific task and a job. Well, that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about God's chosen or God's choice here. We see a breakdown of the life of David. You can do it into four sections. David as a shepherd in 1 Samuel 16 through 17. David as the servant in chapter 18 through 19. Then David as the exile, that means he's running for his life, hiding from Saul. And that's chapter 20 through 31. And then David as king. That's kind of a simple outline. But let's pick it up in verse 1. It says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul? I want to remind you from last week as we were in chapter 15, we looked at this, the king, the people chose, which was Saul, because he was taller than everybody else. He was better looking. He was physically in shape. He looked like a king. And the people wanted him to be king. But God tested him and tested him and tested him. 
wanting him to be obedient, and yet Saul failed and failed and failed over and over again. And in chapter 15, God gave him specific instructions. He says, I want you to go take out the Amalekites, destroy them, everything. But Saul was only half obedient. He left the king alive and the best livestock, which God told him to destroy. And Saul lied to Samuel. Samuel gave him time and chances to repent. God gives him second chances, third chances, fourth chances. And finally, Samuel says, what are you, why are you lying? What's up? He goes, what does God take pleasure in? Sacrifices and burnt offerings or in obedience? When we hear his voice and we respond. What God takes pleasure in is a responsive heart that hears God's word and is obedient to the voice of God. And Samuel says two or three times in that passage of Scripture, God has rejected you as king over his people. And now here, we see Samuel mourning. He's mourning for Saul because he cared about Saul specifically. He wasn't just, being, he wasn't just using Saul. He genuinely cared for his soul, and he was mourning over the fact that he was rebellious and not submitting to the Lord. But I think another reason Samuel was mourning was because for God's people and the nation as a whole. Because now they have a leader in authority that God has rejected, who has turned his back on God, not following after the Lord. And Samuel is looking at the future, and it seems bleak. It seems dark. It seems depressive. Because I don't know where the nation's going to go. I have no idea where things are going to go from this point on. Maybe he was losing hope. But God here gives him some hope. He says, I have provided myself a king among his sons, among Jesse's sons. God was not going to allow his people to be destroyed. He provided new leadership. He wasn't going to let them go yet. And God tells Samuel to stop mourning. I've chosen a different king. Now, if we think about mourning, for the, we've all mourned before, right? We've grieved the loss of a friend, maybe a loved one. The Bible says, according to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, that there is a specific time to mourn, and there is a specific time to weep. If you've never read chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes, it's great. He says there's a time to dance, there's a time to laugh, there's a time to have fun, there's a time to be serious, all these things. But he says there's a time to mourn, and there's a time to weep. But there's a limit to that mourning. It's okay to mourn, but there's a time where we need to stop mourning or it will consume us. And God says, I don't want you to be consumed in grief. I don't want you to be consumed in sorrow. In Isaiah chapter 61, verse 3, God says, hey, if you give me your mourning, I will give you joy in return. God offers. He goes, I will trade. I don't know about you guys. That sounds like a great trade, right? Trade something that's sorrowful and full of pain to give it to the Lord. And he says, I will give you joy in return. That's God's heart. But are we going to take him up on the offer? I believe for maybe one of you in this room, you've been maybe mourning too long over your past. 
over certain sins you've committed and those sins keep coming to your mind and you keep beating yourself up, God says stop mourning over those. If you've confessed them and you've asked for forgiveness, God has wiped you clean, now he's saying move on. Maybe it is over the loss of a loved one. The Lord might be telling you, it's time to stop weeping because the Lord has something better for you. A new day has dawned and God is doing something new. Just like in Samuel's day, he is constantly doing something new. It says in the Psalms that God's mercies are new every morning. If Saul was the people's choice for king, then David was God's choice to become king. Look at what Psalm 78 verses 70 through 71. He, referring to God, chose David his servant and took him from the sheep pens. From tending to the sheep, he brought him to the shepherd of his people, to be shepherd of his people, of Jacob, of Israel, his inheritance. God chose David here for one main reason, and that is Acts 13, 22. God gave him a testimony and says, I have found David, a son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my, all my will or my commandments. That's what David was. That's what he was known for. He was known for someone who was seeking after God's heart. And that's what God was looking for. God today is still looking for men and women who are after his heart. It says in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, that God's eyes run to and fro throughout the whole entire earth. That means he's looking for someone that is faithful or loyal who would believe in him. God is looking for one person who would dare to believe in him, and he will show the world around that person what he can do in that individual's life. In verses 2 and 3, Samuel's actually afraid to go. He says, God, if I go, Saul's going to kill me. And God gives him a simple and practical solution. He says, take a cow with you and go sacrifice that cow. It's a very simple and practical thing. That's what Samuel was to do. And then he says, I will show you what you shall do. This is interesting. He says, I will show you what you're going to do. God gave Samuel a piece of the puzzle. He didn't tell him everything all at once. He goes, this is the guy's name. This is his address. This is all these things. He had one location to go to. Bethlehem. He had the means of getting there, a sacrifice, so that Saul wouldn't get suspicious. Outside of that, he didn't know what else to do. God says, then I'll show you the next step. See, God's calling is a progressive calling. It gets revealed over and over. The word of progressive means to develop gradually, step by step. As you take that one step, then God shows you the next step. As you take that next step, then God shows you another step. Sometimes we want to know God's end goal for our whole entire life. And the main goal that God wants is us to enjoy him and glorify him forever. Those two things. But we want to know specifics. We want to know know the map of our life. Nobody has ever told the map of their life. Because we have to live by faith. And so, in verse 4 it says, So Samuel did what the Lord said. He went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his presence and says, Do you come peaceably? Now, I want to remind you guys of the story. Samuel is not someone to be messing with. 
Samuel told Saul, you were supposed to kill the Amalekites. Saul kept the king alive. And as they were kind of worshiping God, Samuel said, bring out the king. And he brings out the king. And Samuel brings out a sword. And it says in the text that Samuel hacks this guy to death because he had to finish what Saul didn't complete. I don't know about you, but I don't want to mess with Samuel. And Samuel is a prophet. He speaks for God. He represents God. So when the prophet comes to your city, you're thinking like, okay, is he coming in judgment? Or why is he coming? And that's why they're asking here. They're kind of like very concerned. And Samuel's like, actually, I've come in peace. But he came to Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem, you can see it on the map here, is a small town in Judah. But it's a well-known place where several biblical stories take place in this location. I'm not going to go into all of them. But who else was from Bethlehem? Can anybody remember and tell me who else was from Bethlehem in the Bible? Joshua. Jesus, correct. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Does anybody know what Bethlehem means? This is a fun fact. No? It means house of bread. Now, you might be thinking, why is that a fun fact? If you think about it, Jesus said one of the I am statements. He says, I am the bread of life. If you come to me and partake, you will have everlasting life. So the bread of life was literally born in Bethlehem, the house of bread. Do you think that's a coincidence? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't believe in coincidences when it comes to Scripture and these things. I think that is God being cool and wise and doing his thing. <laughs> so in verse 5 it says, he responded to people, do you come peaceably? And he goes, yes, peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Now, the word sanctify usually means to be made holy. But according to the Old Testament in Exodus, it means that when you were invited to a specific gathering, a sacrifice, you were to take a bath and put on a change of clothes to kind of, you're coming before the Lord to sanctify yourself, set yourself apart. And he consecrated Jesse. Now, Jesse was of the tribe of Judah, the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. If you guys don't know the story, that's also another book of the Bible. It's only four chapters, but it also lines up with Jesus's lineage um, because he's part of the tribe of Judah of David's lineage as well. So they throw this feast. They get things ready. They're getting the sacrifice together. And all of a sudden, there's a gathering. People are coming. The elders of the city are there. Jesse and his sons are there. And this is what takes place. Verse 6, so it, so it was when they came that he, Samuel, looked at, now I can never pronounce biblical names, guys. I always butcher them, okay? So I say this guy is Eliab, probably pronounced differently. I don't know. But it's basically Jesse's firstborn. Samuel sees him and says, surely this is the Lord's anointed before me. Samuel looked at Jesse's oldest son, and no doubt he was impressive to look at. Probably shredded, good-looking, 6'2", perhaps 255 pounds of solid muscle. 
And if you saw this guy, you'd be like, dude, yeah, that's God's anointed. <laughs> and that's what Samuel said. This is the one. But he forgot God's instructions. God told him in verse 3, I will show you what you shall do. Samuel didn't wait for God's response. He was getting ahead of the Lord and went off of what he saw in man's appearance. Sometimes we're guilty of that, guys. We can get ahead of God. And the Lord's like, slow down. Wait for me. Be obedient in the first things and then wait for his response. See, Samuel had been walking with God for many years. He's an old man now. And yet, as an old man, he still makes mistakes. Junior hires. Listen, you are not going to get to a point of Christianity where you make no mistakes. Even as an old man who had a real, genuine relationship with God, he made a mistake. He didn't wait for God. But guess what? I'm thankful to God that he made this mistake. Because of Samuel's mistake, you and I have a beautiful, rich, holy verse to meditate on that gives us a glimpse into the heart of God because of Samuel's mistake. So sometimes we might get overwhelmed at one of our mistakes and think, oh, this is the end. Listen, God can take something like ashes and make something beautiful out of that. If he can take dirt, breathe on it, and make human beings, give your mistake over to God and see what he can do. God actually corrects Samuel here because he judges wrong. And this is what he says. Verse 7 is probably the key verse to First and Second Samuel. And if you do not have it underlined in your Bible, underline it, highlight it, Memorize it, guys. It says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical structure, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. We as human beings place so much value on external things, on appearances, on how we look, on outward. And we place so little value on inward things. See, if we're amused or amazed by someone's physical appearance, God is not. A couple months back, we had the men's conference, and we had this guy, Ken Graves, out. How many of you guys went to the men's conference? For you guys that went to the men's conference and you guys heard Ken Graves' voice or the next morning, you're just like, your jaw drops. You're like, oh my gosh, who talks like that? He's like, hey man, how are you doing? And he just has like this manly voice. It was funny, as we were walking out, there was 50, 60, and 70-year-old men saying, man, I don't sound like a man compared to that guy. <laughs> These are full-grown dudes. And they were taken back by his appearance, by his, the sound of his voice. God's not impressed. He's not. See, external appearances neither qualifies nor disqualifies. It simply does not matter to God. Our outward appearance is not as important as we make it out to be. You know what matters to God? The heart. Your heart. Your heart is what he values in my heart. 
Now why? Why is God so interested in the heart? Why is he not interested in our eyes? Why is he not interested in our ears or our hands or our feet? What about our mind? We're going through a mental health crisis of this century in 2023. People taking, taking their lives, doing all sorts of things because mentally they are not healthy. Why, God, why isn't God focusing on the mind? And yet he says, what I value is the heart. Scripture gives us the answer. Proverbs 4, 23 says, above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. Everything. Not some things, everything. The way you act on the field or on the courts or at home or in front of your friends or in front of your teacher how you speak, how you open the door for people that walk in. Whatever it may be, everything flows from your heart, not your mind. See, it's not the mind that is the issue here. We have a problem in our nation and in our country because it's a heart issue, and nobody knows how to deal with that. Your heart determines the course of your life. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I'm not sure if you've ever seen, I, I love it, when these celebrities who everyone goos and gaws at, who look beautiful outwardly and have it all together, I love it when someone captures them on camera and they reveal the ugliness of their heart and they chew somebody out, they cuss somebody out, and it just... You're almost taken back. You're like, oh my gosh. And your perspective on that person changes. Listen, you can look beautiful on the outward appearance, but if your heart is ugly, your beauty only goes skin deep. And it's more, it's better to have inward beauty than outward beauty. Because if your heart is ugly, then everything else that you do is going to be ugly as well. The heart is the most important part of our lives. It says in Mark chapter 7, Jesus' disciples attended this feast, and the Pharisees almost start freaking out. They're like, they didn't wash. And it's not that they didn't wash their hands. They didn't wash according to their custom. When I went to Israel, there's these silver, like, mason jar type things in all the guys' restrooms. I, I didn't go into the girls' restrooms, so I don't know if they're in there. <laughs> um, and so these mason jars, you actually, there's a specific way you're supposed to wash your hand. You're supposed to go like this, rub it together, pour it over this way. And it's like a five-minute process, religious ritual system of washing your hands. And that's why the Pharisees were getting mad at Jesus' disciples. They're like, they didn't wash their hands. And Jesus says, it's not what goes into the body that defiles a person. It's actually the things that come out. And he drops this truth bomb on them that they truly didn't understand. Jesus says, fornication, adultery, murder, lying, and drunkenness, drugs. And he lists all these sins. He goes, all of that comes from the heart. It comes out of your heart. See, we 
have a heart issue in our world, in Chino, in the United States. Jeremiah 17, verses 9 through 10 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who knows it? Listen, according to that verse, I don't even know how wicked my heart is. That's why I have to read Scripture, because through the light of God's Word and the Holy Spirit, it shows me how disgusting my heart is. And sometimes I'm kind of baffled. I'm like, oh, gross, that's disgusting. And that's my own heart. (laughs) That's my own thoughts. We don't even know how wicked our hearts is. God says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Actually, God tested Saul's heart. And you know what came forth? was something ugly, which was rebellion, which is the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness as idolatry and iniquity. That's what was revealed. God tests the heart. He's the one that knows where each and every heart in this room is at. He knows which one of us are saved. He knows which one of us think we are saved. He knows the ones in here that are doubting their salvation. He knows the ones in here who do not have a relationship with God. He knows every single one of our hearts. There's nothing hidden from his eyes. We might fool people. We might be able to fool our parents even. But you can never fool God. His gaze looks past all of it. And the thing is, our world doesn't need their mind changed. You know what they need? They need a new heart. And God specializes in heart transplant. According to Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27, God says, I will take the heart of stone out of them and give them a heart of flesh. I will give them a new nature in other words. When you come to Jesus Christ and you receive him as your Lord and Savior, he gives you a new nature. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You get new desires. I don't know about you guys, but I am powerless to do what pleases God. I don't have the desire or the power or the ability to honor the Lord. The desire to honor God comes from God, actually. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13 says, God says, I will give you the power and the, the desire and the power to do what pleases him. I'm so thankful for that verse. You know why? Because there's like, God, I'll be honest, there's some days I don't want to read. God, there's some days I don't want to worship. God, there's some days I don't want to love my friends or even my enemies or my family. There's days I don't want to be obedient. There's days I don't want to worship you. The desire to worship, the desire to read, the desire to love is from God when he has given you a new heart. Because guess what, guys? Your heart determines your desires. And longing and desire is more powerful than the intellect. Psalm 47 verses 10 through 11 I discovered this verse recently, guys. This verse is fascinating to me. It says, He does not delight in the strength of horses. He takes no pleasure in the legs of men. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those whose hope is his mercy. 
In other words, some people might show off their car or their bike or their scooter, whatever it may be. But, hey, do check out my car. And there's like these nice rims and new paint job and all this stuff. They would do that with their horses. Like, hey, check out my horse. Look at the hoofs. Look at the legs. It's strong. Look at this, the saddle. They would show off their horse. And a horse back then was kind of like a car, like a tank in war. Um, a chariot is like a tank in war. And that's what they would put their trust in. And they would boast in. Not only that, us as guys, we, we boast in our uh, strength and our, the things that we can do. Arm wrestling or how much we can lift. Um, at the summer camp, there was a, uh, some guys talking about lifting, and they were all talking about how much they can lift. Oh, I can lift this. Oh, yeah, I can lift this. And it was just funny to, t- to hear them discuss that. But God says, I don't take pleasure in men's legs. The one thing that brings joy to the heart of God, what he takes pleasure in is those that fear him and put all their expectation into his forgiveness and his mercy. That's what God takes pleasure in. You and I need to know what God likes and what God doesn't like. This is one thing he does love. Those who fear him and put their expectation in him. So my question to you is, where are you at with the Lord? Where is your heart at? Is it divided where you're kind of like wanting Jesus but kind of not? Are you saved? Do you have a real desire for the Lord? Do you know that you're going to heaven? See, God is more concerned about your heart than your appearance because he wants every single one of you in this room to go to heaven. God is looking at the heart. Now look at verses 8 through 10 with me. So Jesse called his second son, which a guy I can't pronounce, and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made the third son pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Verse 10, Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. I think that's so interesting here is that he has not chosen these specific ones. See, David had seven brothers. And these seven brothers all passed before Samuel. And Samuel said to each one, nope, 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 they are not chosen. David also had two sisters. So the question is, what is God looking for? What does, what is he kind of trying to find? Do you know, here's something I've learned over the years. God is attracted to weakness. You, me and you probably hate showing weakness. We hate being vulnerable. Um, we hate being honest and real. God loves those qualities. And according to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 through 28, it says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of this world to put to shame the things which are mighty. The base things of this world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things which are. In other words, what the world 
considers as worthless, as weak, as foolish, as nothing, as lame, God has chosen those things. He goes, I want to use those people. He's attracted to weakness. You know why? I'm somebody that's weak. I'm somebody that is foolish. I shouldn't be up here teaching you guys. I personally feel that there are more things that disqualify me to be up here than qualify me. I consider myself as weak and foolish. Why? Because I'm a terrible speller. Many of you are better spellers and readers than me at the age of 31. I'm dyslexic. I'm terrible at math. Academically wise, I don't like school, guys. Anybody with me? <laughs> I don't like school. I would say I would be the last one chosen to be up here. But God's choice sometimes baffles us. It goes against reason. It sometimes goes against human logic. And God, in his infinite knowledge and his wisdom, he's like, I have a master plan at work. And when he uses foolish and weak things, that's when he gets the most glory. Can you imagine if he used someone prideful? That person that has smart, intellectual, they will say, I did it. They won't give God the glory. And we should not touch God's glory. So everyone passes before Samuel. Samuel says no. Verse 11, Samuel says to Jesse, are all these young men here? Are all your sons here? And he said, oh yeah, there is one. I forgot, the youngest. He's out in the field keeping the sheep. And Jesse said, or Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes. Verse 11 is quite interesting to me. How many of you guys are the youngest in your family? Raise your hand. Really? Only one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight? How many of you guys have middle children? Raise your hand. Yeah, middle children represent. I'm a middle child. I got two older siblings and a younger sibling. How many is the oldest in your family? I'm just kidding. So check this out. David was the youngest. Now, when it says in the text here that he's the youngest, that's not just saying he's just the youngest in age. It means that he was the least in his father's eyes. So small David was that his father was out of sight, out of mind for him. He wasn't even chosen to come to this feast and this sacrifice. He wasn't invited. Think about that. I'm not sure if you've ever felt that way, but David wasn't invited. Can you imagine being out with a sheep around all the smelly animals, smacking away mosquitoes or whatever it is, and you see off into the distance, they're getting ready for a feast and they didn't invite you. David's dad, Jesse, forgot about his son. And I wonder if this situation inspired David to write these words in the psalm. Psalm 27, verse 10. When my father and my mother forsake me. That word forsaken, guys, is to be abandoned. The sad thing is, the Lord gave me this verse for several junior hires at camp. And over and over, he's actually used this for me to minister to people. 
I love this verse, but I hate it. Because it means the people that should be taking care of you the most, your mother and your father, when they don't take care of you. David understood that. Maybe you feel forgotten or unloved or even abandoned. You might have thought to yourself, I don't matter to anybody, not to my parents, not to my family, not to my friends. Maybe you've even thought, since I don't matter to anybody, I should take my own life. See, you might be forgotten by man, but you are never forgotten or forsaken by the Lord. And David realized that because the later half of this verse reads, then the Lord will take care of me. When my father and my, fa when my, father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. That's what David realized. As he was out in the field, he might have struggled with that comparison, might have struggled with the idea that his father doesn't acknowledge all of his hard work. But he had a heavenly father that was watching out over him, that was ministering to him. And David, I bet you, as he was out in the field, had conversations, deep and long conversations with God. He had his harp and he would play music to the Lord. See, I want you guys to know something that David realized. You matter immensely to God. You matter immensely to God. He sees you when no one else sees you. He remembers you when other people forget you. And the funny thing is, is what God says about our sin, when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, but he will not bring them up to remembrance anymore. How does an all-knowing God choose to forget something? The thing he chooses to forget is our mistakes and our failure and our sin. But the thing that he chooses to remember is each and every one of us. He will take care of you. See, David was taking care of the sheep, which means he was a shepherd. Many of us don't know what it's like being a shepherd. I actually started reading a book on being a shepherd, and it's fascinating. Sheep are the most helpless and defenseless animals in the world. Did you know they can die from anything? If they have too much fur, they can die. If they lay on their back too long, they can die. If you don't anoint their nose and their ears with a specific oil or ointment, a bug will crawl into their ears, eat away their brain, and they'll hit their head against a rock until they die. Sheep have teeth, but it's not sharp, so when they bite you, it might like pinch and hurt a little, but it might not draw even blood. They have hoofs. They can't scratch. They follow each other. If one jumps off the, like the, the cliff, the other one's like, meh, and they'll go after it. I'm not sure if you guys have seen it. The, uh, it's a video on like TikTok or um, Instagram. It's this one guy, and the, the, the sheep is stuck in this ravine, this ditch. And so the guy's like trying to get him out and trying to get him out, and finally gets him out. And the sheep's so excited. He's like, yes, I'm free. And it's bouncing around and jumps back into the same hole. <laughs> That's sheep for you. Sheep need a lot of attention. And that's why Jesus compares us to sheep. Because we need a lot of attention. We are defenseless without him. And he is our true shepherd. And this is probably where David was inspired to write Psalm 23, which I would encourage you to read yourselves. 
See, back then there was no school. Talk about an amen, right? No school. <laughs> but that means you also worked. You had a job. And you would have to work at your father's business doing sheep or whatever, taking care of animals, you name it. So David comes in off the field. He's sweaty. He's dirty. Probably stinks. Smells like sheep. Verse 12. So when he was brought in, now he was ruddy and bright-eyed and good-looking. And the Lord said, anoint him, for this is the one. What made David so special? I'll tell you, it wasn't his appearance, because that's not what mattered to the Lord. It was his heart. At a young age, he was a man after God's own heart. And God chooses the most unlikely people to do his will. I love this. If you look at scripture, he uses the most unlikely people to do his will. Moses was 80 years old, a man that couldn't speak well. And God says, I want to use you. Gideon was the least in his family, least in strength, and he's hiding in a wine press, threshing wheat from the enemy because he doesn't want to die. If you look at the apostles, you had a fisherman, you had a tax collector, you had all these different men arguing over who is the greatest. God uses all sorts of people. Look at Hebrews 11 and the men and women of faith in there. God chooses the most unlikely people to do his will, and he's choosing David. Verse 13, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So David arose and went to Ramah. Notice, that Samuel took the oil and poured it over David. Can you picture this? The oil is running down his head, down to his face, all over his clothes. It wasn't just like a little bloop, bloop. No, it was anointed completely. And the smell and the fragrance of that oil filled the house. Can you imagine? He's the least in his family. What did his older brothers think? Because it says that he, it was, he was anointed in the midst of his brothers. Was his brothers jealous, confused? Did they not believe like David's or like Jesus' brothers? Jesus' brothers and siblings didn't believe that he was the Messiah. It is unlikely that they understood what was taking place. I think the only two people that understood what was taking place here was Samuel and David. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him from that day forward. I love that. God shows David to become king and equips him for the work ahead by giving him the Holy Spirit. Now he has all that he needs to fulfill the task ahead. Warren Wiersbe said, Without the power of the Holy Spirit, the servant of God is helpless to do the will of God and glorify him. You and I cannot serve the Lord and glorify the Lord without the Spirit of God. See, the Holy Spirit is actively at work in the world around us in three ways. He's with, in, or indwelling, and upon. He's with all unbelievers, whispering into their ears, saying, receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Get right. What you're doing, this sin, is wrong. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And when we respond to that conviction and say, yeah, I agree, it's wrong. Lord Jesus, would you come into my heart? That's when the Holy Spirit comes and dwells inside of us. 
And if you are possessed by the Holy Spirit, you cannot be uh, possessed by any other spirit, okay? Because God made our bodies to be able to inhabit his spirit. But then there's the upon. That's the empowering for service. And many Christians stay at the indwelling. They have the Spirit of God inside of them, but they've never experienced the upon, the Holy Spirit empowering them for works of service. I could not do what I do here on Wednesdays and Sundays and throughout the week without the Holy Spirit's assistance and help. See, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all of Judea, in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That word power means dudamas, where we get our English word dynamite. <laughs> That's kind of cool. He says, you shall receive dynamite power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Does that mean we're going to convulse and have like goosebumps? No. Okay. That doesn't mean we're going to get superpowers. It's supernaturally natural. Supernaturally natural. The Holy Spirit will help you love others. Help you die to yourself and live for the Lord. See, here we have a pattern, guys. David, before he actually started serving the Lord, is empowered by the Spirit. Jesus, before he started his ministry, when he was getting baptized, the Holy Spirit came down upon him. Before the apostles were sent out, Jesus says, remain in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. There's a pattern. We have to receive the Holy Spirit before we actually serve the Lord. And I wonder if for those that serve in kids' ministry or serve at this church somewhere or a different church, are you empowered by the Spirit? Has the Spirit come upon you? Do you have that defining factor in your life? You, know, you might be thinking, Josh, I'm only a junior higher. I don't have to have the Spirit at this age. Oh, really? Let me ask you the question. How old was David here in this moment? Did you think about that? How old? 13? It's possible. Check this out. He was anywhere from 10 to 15 years old. He could have been your age when he was anointed as king and the oil came down and the spirit came upon him. At the age of 16 to 19, that's when he took down Goliath, guys. At the age of 30 is when he became king. And 70 or 71 is when he died. Please do not tell me that you as a junior higher can't be filled with the Spirit of God. Because Scripture tells you otherwise. He says you can. The question is, do you want it? Do you want it? There are some requirements to be filled with the Spirit. First, you have to be a believer. If you are not saved, make that your first choice. Secondly, you got to have faith. Just as you received salvation as a gift, the Holy Spirit you receive as a gift as well by faith. There has to be this longing, this unsatisfied with the Christian life that you are living at this moment. Maybe you feel powerless. Maybe you feel defeated. And you're saying, God, I need your help. That is good when you are dissatisfied with the level of Christianity because God has his level of Christianity is here, but we are often lowering the level of Christianity. He wants to empower you, but the more important thing is he needs a heart that is surrendered and responding to his word. Saul did not have a heart that responded to his word. David did. 
We cannot lead, we cannot serve without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Even in the smallest responsibilities, we need the Spirit of God. See, this is David's first time being mentioned in Scripture, or actually in the first Samuel. Does anybody know what David means? David, do you know what your name means? Beloved. Correct. It means beloved. And even though David was rejected or forgotten by his father, he was chosen and beloved by God. And so when you guys feel rejected and forgotten by the world, know that God sees you. God loves you. God wants you. Just as he did this with David. So Samuel rose and went to Ramah. Samuel wasn't responsible for making David king. That was God's job. See, David was anointed as king here, but wouldn't become king 15 years later, guys. He had to wait and had to go through some refining. But something that, one thing I want to end with is David was the eighth son of Jesse. Eight in the Bible stands for new beginnings. And this is the start of a new leadership, a new spirituality in Israel. God was doing a new work. So in conclusion, God's choice doesn't make sense to the logical brain. He's looking for weak men and women who are desperate for him, who are surrendered and saying, God, I'm willing to give you everything if I can just have you. He uses the foolish and the weak things of this world to put to shame the things that are mighty and wise. God wants you. He died on the cross for you to have a relationship with you. The question is, do you want the Lord? God wants to choose you, but have you chosen the Lord?